Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to have back on the podcast Ashley Ward. Ashley is a professor of animal behavior at the University of Sydney, where his research focuses on social behavior of animals that include all types of animals, fish, birds, mammals. And um, he was on the podcast uh, about a year ago, actually. And we talked about his first book, The Social Lives of Animals. And in that conversation, we had a, a two and a half hour conversation about cooperation and the, and the many social lives of animals. Uh, Ashley is back at it again, and he's got a new book out, and it is fantastic. As I mentioned in the conversation, uh, his first book was great, but the second book is just as good, if not better. And uh, that book is Where We Meet the World, The Story of the Senses. And so he talks about uh, the five, at least the five senses that us as humans have and and many other aspects. So we start the conversation by talking about uh, defining sense, what is a sense, and why we focus on the five senses. We talk about how we can know reality outside the senses, or can we? (laughs) We talk uh, then about the, the five major senses. We start by talking about the complexity of the eye. Some of its evolutionary history, uh, rods and cones, we get all into it. Uh, we also talk about how human eyes are, are different from other eyes of other animals. We talk about the role of beauty and aesthetics. We talk about sounds, the impact of sound and music. We talk about taste and how it evolves over time. We talk about a sense of smell and how it's really important. And of course, we talk about uh, the importance of touch and how that was even more recently. We can see that in the pandemic where people weren't able to, you know, be with their loved ones, you know, everything on zoom was, was, was cool for a little bit until it wasn't and how we really do need to have um, a sense of, of touch as, as social animals. Uh, Ashley is a wonderful person. He's, he's such a good guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's very, very brilliant. He's a great writer. He's such a good science communicator. Really, really good to talk to. We always have so much fun. Um, as you probably hear in the conversation, you know, I, I really, I really enjoy my conversations with Ashley. We, we get on well together and it's just always a really, really, really good time. And, and, um, I love, I love talking to him. I love talking to him about, uh, about his research and about, uh, animals in general, and uh, can't wait to get him on here again. As always, you can listen to this conversation and all other past and, and upcoming conversations at my free Substack, Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. So you can subscribe there. I'm also on YouTube. You can subscribe there. So those are all the relevant places. Uh, make sure you get Ashley's book. It's fabulous. And uh, now I bring you Ashley Ward. I am here with Ashley Ward. Uh, Ashley, it is so wonderful to uh, talk to you again on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely is. Um, for uh, listeners, if you want to listen to Ashley and I talk about his previous book, um, that is episode 117, entitled Cooperation in the Social Lives of Animals. I believe the title of the book is The Social Life of Animals. Uh, we right, talk about... Yeah cooperation in, in different uh, species around the animal kingdom. It's a fabulous book. And uh, it was a wonderful conversation that we have for, I think, for, for about two hours. And uh, you have the 
the uh I guess not the sequel to that book, but you have the the next one in the in the tank from you. It's called Where We Meet the World, the Story of the Senses. And uh as I was telling you uh before we got on here, uh the the first book's great, everyone should buy it and and, and it's wonderful. But uh this one is is so good. It's so good. I really, really enjoy this. I read this in two sittings. Uh, as with all seriousness, and I, I just really inhaled it. I really, really enjoyed it. So I, I, I really like this one a lot. That's wonderful to hear. I, I think it's you probably characterize it more as a follow up than a, than a sequel, but mm-hmm. it all stems from the same thing. Just the general fascination that I have with all things to do with biology, really, and I guess particularly in terms of the the whole animal stuff and how we perceive the world in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what's so cool about it is, is that, you know, we, we, many organisms have different senses. Obviously we have at least five, uh, but trying to look at the senses and looking at it with humans, but also some other aspects of other animals and biology is, is wonderful. Um, I know you're on the other side of the world, so it's always fun talking to people from the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope things are treating you well down under. <laughs> things are great. Um, the only thing is that it's the morning here. It's your afternoon, um, right. the previous day, which is always hard to get my head around. I don't really know why, but um, it does mean, unfortunately, that Sydney Airport is fairly active right now. So we, we're going <laughs> to get a few airplanes going overhead as we talk. No, you're, you're totally fine. Um, okay, so you you uh, was this a pandemic book that you write this one on the senses or, or did you already have this kind of starting before when you were finishing the last book or tell me about how this kind of came about, I guess. I had the germ of the, of the idea sort of flitting around in my head for, for a few years, but yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to characterize it as a pandemic book. You know, we were all obviously locked down and um, had a little bit more time on our hands in some cases, those of us who were lucky enough not to be suffering the worst effects. And so really it was the pandemic that kind of gave me the impetus to write it. Mm. And at the same time, you know, there were some stories coming out of the pandemic about how it affected us in terms of our senses. Um, the most obvious example of that, of course, being touch, which I dare say we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but the isolation um, that was brought about by the pandemic had some had some real impact on 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 our lives beyond the the, the more obvious day to day things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's we've I think realized uh, and are still kind of realizing it that there's nothing kind of replaceable about being in the same room with somebody. Um, obviously, you know, there's we've been doing things over Zoom and all these other you know virtual kinds of platforms, which are fine. And I think it's been great in some ways, but there's nothing quite like, you know, hanging out with somebody or being with somebody physically in the room with them. And, and I think, yeah, touch is, you know, all the senses, but I think touch in particular, you know, it's, it's, you can't give a virtual hug as much as we try to, or, you know, whatever, a good, you know, virtual handshake. It's, it's just not replaceable, you know. Absolutely. It is irreplaceable. Um, although there are actually some sort of, tactile haptic devices which uh which have been developed that can potentially do precisely that or perhaps on a more sort of i dare say practical level um mm. potentially might allow doctors to um perform operations on people from distances of thousands of, of miles so wow. you know the, there is the possibility at least that we're developing the technology to to transmit touch but it really isn't the same Mm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's not maybe a hundred years from now or 50 years from now, but you know, we'll, <laughs> I guess we'll see. So 
Um, I want to, the first question I want to ask is obviously some definitions here. So how do you define a sense? Um, and why do we kind of focus on these standard five and not other maybe potential senses, at least for humans? So just kind of define it for us. Why do we get five and are there other senses, uh, that we, that we may have as well? Okay. I guess the, least controversial definition of a sense will be as a faculty which um, exists to interpret a certain aspect of the physical environment that has receptors which can collect a specific kind of information and then transfer that along nervous communication lines to our brain where it can be translated. So it's a combination of receptor, nerves, and a part of the brain to, to interpret it in a in a sense um why we concentrate on the five well that's a story that goes back hundreds thousands of years um back to at least the time of aristotle if not before um because it was aristotle or at least aristotle's preserved writings which gave us this idea that we have five senses and that's kind of intuitive to us you know we've got sight sound smell taste and touch and we learn that at school um, so we, we get this idea of five senses. However, um, <laughs> it is, of course, a bit of a shortcut to think in those terms. So we do have other senses. Um, we'd be lost, for instance, without our sense of balance. Um, we might not accord it the same respect as, as the other senses, but nonetheless, it is a sense in and of itself. Um, and really, it depends how you chop up the different senses, but we may have somewhere north of 50 different senses. So I, I don't know that necessarily putting an exact number of, on, on the number of senses that we have is, is particularly helpful. But if we think about the senses more broadly, it does give us a, a better idea of, of how it is exactly that we perceive the world. And, and that's the important thing, I think. Is it, could it be that the five senses, so taste, smell, seeing, hearing, touch, could those be more, are, are they individual senses that we have? But if you're talking about there's numerous senses, are those five maybe a kind of more categorical, if you will? So under the, the sense of smell or the sense of hearing, there's all these other kind of sub-senses that we have that are sort of kind of under that, or are they completely different altogether? No, they're not completely different. I I, I see what you're saying. I mean, touch itself is is really a collaboration between a, a number of different kinds of receptors. So our sense of touch really, you know, could be maybe five or six different senses all brought together that we call touch or that we experience as touch and perhaps most importantly think of as touch. Um, our sense of taste, of course, well, that's really not just, you know, flavor perception. It's not just the, the perception of certain flavors in our mouth. It's something which is also the, the the sense of smell also contributes to. So that's really a, a, a collaboration between smell and taste, our flavor perception. So yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Um it evades really clear categorical breakdowns. But you know, what the brain does, what the brain does so wonderfully is to bring all of these different senses together to give us a unified and unique perception. Yeah, I think it's interesting how how the brain is working and, and how we're kind of perceiving things. So I'm going to ask a 
before we get into the, I guess the big, uh, the big five, I guess, if you will, or, or I think there's <laughs> six you kind of mentioned in the book, but um <clears throat> going to ask the deep philosophical question uh, first here. <laughs> so um we understand the world, our world through our sensorium, right? The things in our senses yeah. that come to us. So if you would take another more computational, uh, I, you know, way of framing it, you know, we're getting inputs from the environment and then we're having certain outputs based on how we synthesize and register them, et cetera. But do you think there are things outside of our senses that exist and that we could know? Another way you could say that. So this is, starts to become a kind of, uh, you know, empirical question of sorts of, you know, if we can't know it through our senses, does it exist? Or, or in another way, it may exist, but does it really matter if it exists if we can't know it through our senses? Or is there other yeah. ways we could know things outside of our senses? So a kind of phenomenological experience of things. What do you, what do you make of all of these types of things? That's a wonderful question. I, I, I don't know that I'm able to give you a good answer, but it's mind blowing to think, just to take it back to what we can perceive for a moment. It's mind blowing to think that nothing really exists in the way that we perceive it. The color red doesn't exist. None of the colors exist. Yeah. Um, sounds don't exist. Smells don't exist. Smells, for instance, that, that's a crazy one. What we perceive, let's say, as the beautiful, strong smell of coffee first thing in the morning mm -hmm. is really just a collection of volatile, um, volatile chemicals which reach our nose and which in a way that we're not actually even yet fully clear about manages to cause our sensory system to give us the perception of the smell of coffee. You know, that th th there's, there's nothing coffee-ish about the molecules that are going up our nose, but our brain interprets it in this way. So is there really such a thing as the smell of coffee? Not really. It is an interpretation. Is there really such a thing as colors? No, there are interpretations too. So really, this is our brain really just interpreting the universe uh, around us, just really constructing the environment from um, this sort of what I call the jumble of physics that surrounds us. It's, I mean, it's, it really, <laughs> it does make people stop and think, and it actually makes people rebel when you tell them there is no such thing as, as light or sound or, you know, not, not in the way that we perceive it. They, they resist that. So is there anything beyond that, which was your original question? Well, I'm sure there is, but um, what that would look like or, or, or feel like to us, who knows? And, and the other question that you posed, does it matter? Well, I think it does. I mean, you know, we can't perceive, for instance, um, at least not in any <laughs> experimentally reproducible way, we can't really experience the magnetic pull of the Earth. And yet, for many animals that traverse the globe, it's an incredibly important signal. Um, so it obviously matters to them. Yeah. Um, that's, it, our senses feel so real to us that it's very difficult to take a step back and say, well, you know, actually these things are all an interpretation. So yeah, I, I, I don't know quite where that leaves us, but, but certainly it is one of the most incredible illusions that uh, perpetrated on us in our entire life, probably the most mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you when you when you kind of you know 
break your brain about when you first come to this, you know, when I first kind of come to this and thought about this over time, reading different things at different points in my life, it does, um, it does create a lot of uncertainty about things for sure. But there is a bigger freedom in it, uh, that, I think, because you can, you have to be careful about your perceptions, uh, about things that we think are in reality. But we, but there's a, there's a idea of, there are no, I think, true universals about many things. Maybe for some things there are. But how you're experiencing those aspects or your perception of those things is always going to be a little bit different because each organism is a little bit different. And again, that can cause a lot of, you know, angst or uncertainty. But I think there's also potential freedom in that as well. So it's kind of this paradoxical idea. And there's, there's something so, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's a primordial thing, but it's like this intuition of, if if it's all in our senses, but even that is not stable enough or, you know, if you, I, I know what the smell of coffee is in the morning. God damn it. I know what that is. I know I had it this morning. I had it this afternoon when it's, when it's, when it's, you know, co- you know, brewing and everything. And, but it's not really something that is stable enough or consistent enough to know that through our, our olfactory, uh, kinds of uh, network and that's a i guess the the second part is does it matter i mean you know the philosophical part of me says you all have to be nihilist first before you can find the existentialism in things right so you got to know it's all not really there it's all kind of meaningless but then you transcend that and say well what value or meaning do i want for me and how do i you know live a life or or live my life with you know, the purpose and value I have where it's not colliding too much in a negative way uh, with other people around you. You know, I think you can get there, but I think it's just really, it's just, it's just kind of a mind fuck when you can't even get it to the senses, the major five or six that we have. Like now even that is a kind of, uh, like, oh man, I can't, what, what can I hang my hat on? It's, it's a, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a paradoxical thing, I guess. On, on an imaginary hook, I guess, but yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it, look, our senses to us feel so objectively real. You know, we can look at a tree and say, damn it, that tree is there and it is green and I'm telling you it's green. Mm-hmm. And that feels real to us. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter how many times you hear somebody like me saying, well, you know, green doesn't actually exist. People have an experience of green and they're going to believe their eyes, but, as you hint there, I mean, you know, our, our senses really are just taking in data. They're interpreting it, which is the critical part, yeah. and they're constructing um, a vision of the world or, or a, you know, an experience of the world, which um, accords with, importantly, what they've previously experienced. So, you know, not only are, are our sort of receptors different and our individual sense is different our experiences throughout life are different and all of these come into play to shape how we feel about the world how we experience the world how we um you know the the world that we we live and so each of us i mean this is one of the most amazing things i think i found um in the course of researching and then writing this book that obviously each of us um 
differs in terms of our in terms of our senses. Uh, that's not just about gender or about age or about you know anything like that. It, it's also even at the genetic level. Mm. And the ultimate upshot of that is that not only are we different from other animals, we're different from each other. So that not only is my perception of the world different to yours, for instance. But my perception of the world is different to that of anybody else who has ever lived. Mm-hmm. Not by much, perhaps, mm-hmm. but because of genetic differences between us, because of differences in receptor types, because of, you know, experience, wiring, call it what you like, we're all incredibly unique in terms of our senses. And so, you know, we may agree that the tree is green, that the tomato is red, and so on and so forth. But each of us will see it in just that very slightly different way. And I, I, I think that's fascinating. I mean, and that, and that, I guess, is a gateway to not only to the science of the senses, but also to great art. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting is that, <laughs> you know, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit uh, more recently is, is I, I think that there's a very impoverished way of thinking for many people in a digital age, unfortunately, um, yeah. there's many wonderful things about a digital age, but there's this element where we're not thinking, you know, I think hard enough or critically enough. I don't think we're creating as much anymore. And we're definitely not reading as much anymore. Um, and I think that one of the things I think about is that it, this is the kind of footnote to the bit we're talking here is, you know, you're, Training is, a, is, you know, in biology, you know, my training is in clinical psychology, right? And through these different disciplines, we're both talking about philosophical underpinnings of this, right? Now, I'm not a philosopher, you're not either. But I think you need to have a good, you know, philosophy of mind, a philosophy of nature, um, of, of what that means for, you know, the work that we do. And, and I think that that's really important because what I'm hearing in, in, in this and this bit here is that, you know, perception is important. The individual experience is important. And you're mapping that onto, you know, some of the genetic, uh, you know, uh, distinctive, you know, differences between each individual human, much less other or- multicellular or unicellular organisms on the planet. And it's just interesting how, how, what is the kind of framework or structure that we're, um, we're using? You know, what is that, that philosophical framework we're using to kind of understand things through, you know, a different, you know, discipline or science. And I, and I find that, mm, uh, I think if people have that, there's a really nice kind of overlap that can happen there of trying to say, are, are we thinking about this, um, uh, with a, a good, good structure here, which obviously you, you do so well. And, and so it's just very interesting how there's a lot of overlap with a lot of different uh, perspectives. Completely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you know, as, as a biologist, um, or indeed any, any specialist, you, you, that there is the temptation, the possibility that you would approach a subject with a kind of hubris based on your own discipline. But the first thing I think you need to learn about the senses is that a single, a single perspective, say just a biological perspective isn't going to be enough on its own. You need all kinds of different viewpoints if you're going to make any sense of the senses so you know yes you you need to think about the philosophy behind it you need to think about you know all manner of different aspects um 
you know, in science, we crave certainty. <laughs> that's one thing the senses really can't give us when you knock it right back to the <laughs> basics. So, yeah, I, I think taking a multidisciplinary approach was was actually quite scary for me at the outside of uh, at the outset of the book, but um, became incredibly valuable um, as, as as I went through my research. Yeah, well, it really comes through in the book, and it's just it's super sharp and very clear, and uh, I think it's it, it makes for a strong uh, kind of through line. Um, so let's let's start with. Uh, I think it's the first one you, I think I went in order of, of how you go in the book. You start, I think, with the eye. The eye is so fascinating. It's so complicated. And if you ever want an example, I'm going to show my cards here. If you ever want an example of <laughs> a non-intelligent designer kind of theory, <laughs> just look at the eye. It's, it's so almost everybody, you know, wears corrective lenses. You know, it's, it's got so many issues. I mean, like it just, it's an, it's an incomplete almost feeling uh, of a, of an organ, but the eye is so fascinating. I remember learning it in my different physio classes I took in grad school of just like how many weeks and weeks we spent just on the eye. And we talked about rods and cones and all that stuff. It was fun to see all that stuff in the book. Um, so just kind of just just give us the kind of you know snapshot of just the eye and how it's 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 function. Um, but what's really interesting is the evolution of the eye. Uh, I, I know, I think you use in the book, uh, I've heard other people talk about, a lot of biologists talk about the flatworm and the kind of you know, a lens and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of talk us through or march us through kind of the eye and just that kind of the, basically how it functions. You can start with humans or just other, you can just pull in other, uh, uh, animals. And then we can talk about the kind of front to back thing on the retina. Sure. I mean, exactly as you say, this, is the most wondrous organ. I mean, it performs this extraordinary task, um, passes vast, vast amounts of information through to our brain. And yet really it's, it's the most bizarre collection of different properties, um, that have been brought together to create this. You know, it, it's something that creationists, um, as you alluded to sort of point to as a, as a kind of gotcha moment, how could this possibly evolve? Well, happily, we've got tons of of evidence about this. Um, and we've got every stage of the eye's evolution from the kind of light-sensitive cells um, or light-responsive cells you can even get on, on things like plants all the way up to uh, more complex eyes. I, I, I was about to say up, up to our eyes, but actually there are better eyes than ours out there in the, in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I mean, who, who has sorry, who has better eyes than us in the animal kingdom? I, I I know this is true. I'm trying to remember who what other animal has better eyes than us. So well, I guess it depends which which feature you're looking at. But raptors have better acuity. Birds of prey, um, mm-hmm. mantis shrimps have an incredible ability to process all manner of different properties of of the light environment. Um, cephalopods have remarkable vision too you know it depends which which aspect you're you're concentrating on but but is it with cephalopods they have a similar kind of shape and orientation to the human eye right which makes it so fascinating because there's a lot of exactly. i guess it's a kind of convergent evolution here maybe because there's a there's a lot of time and distance and different branches on the evolutionary tree between cephalopods and and you know apes like us right i mean that's it's very interesting yeah, how it's similar exactly they evolved independently which is such a beautiful thing to to examine mm-hmm. but ultimately when it comes down to it and i like ours at least is 
can be relatively simply described in terms of the way that you know light hits the eye um the surface of the eye and the lens bend that light inwards to this remarkable little patch of it's actually brain tissue it's the only um, part of the, the brain that can be reached without drilling into the skull and that's the retina mm. and sat there on the retina are lots and lots of different kind of sensitive cells which um fizz with excitement whenever they're hit with a light of a certain type or you know with a certain wavelength or with sufficient brightness and a colossal amount of information is passed by those millions upon millions of cells to the brain. You know, at every fraction of a second, the brain is being bombarded by information from our eyes. Um, so that's essentially the, the 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 basic functioning of the eye. But you know, really, what we have as an eye is is a, a really a throwback to our distant antecedents. Um, existence underwater. You know, we have this wet eye, which really <laughs> comes back to where, where the eye first evolved underwater. We, we see a range of colors, which is also to some degree, uh, has been dictated by the evolution of life initially underwater. So, um, yeah, we, we, we have eyes which have been bequeathed to us by our marine ancestors, um, and which now perform a wonderful job with um, interpreting the world above water, but to do so need uh, a blinking eye, uh, you know, a blinking eyelid, and, and, and all sorts of things to keep them wet. It's 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 really not ideal, but mm. it's a rather beautiful um, signpost back in time to to where our eyes evolved. Mm. Um, so yeah, as you, as you kind of um, well, as, as you already said, we we have two main kinds of photoreceptors on the retina. We have rods, mm. and we have cones, both named for their shapes. Rods primarily, their primary business is in detecting levels of light, and they give us a, a kind of grayscale appreciation of the world. And then the cones, um, they respond differentially to different parts of the visible spectrum. So, you know, we have um, some cones which approximate to uh, peak in, in in the red part of the spectrum, um, others which uh, peak in the blue part of the spectrum, and and, and still. A third kind, um, for most of us at any rate, which peaks, well, we sometimes say, say, say green, but actually it's, it's closer to, towards yellow, yellowy orange. But, um, yeah, so with these three different kinds of cones, they triangulate lots of information and they give us our perception of color. So we, we, we see really two main properties of light, brightness and color. There are others, um, that we don't see, um, and that in itself is interesting. Um, but yeah, that's a basic rundown of the eye, I guess, and the vision. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all. I mean, I think super, super important. Uh, and again, there's these different features that other animals have of our eye, and vice versa. But um, tell us a little bit about the the evolution of the eye. Obviously, it's a very long history, but maybe just kind of the big key um, uh, kind of. Uh, points along the evolutionary uh time scale of where we oh. see an eye from out of water and then where we're seeing yeah. it on land and how, how it's evolved to where we what we know yeah so i mean if you look at the, the the genes behind the different components of the eye you'll see that unlike some more sort of specialized uh, or, or some other specialized structures the genes involved in the eye come from all over our genome, which kind of um, hint, excuse me, which kind of hints 
that really the eye is a bit borrowed, it's constructed by borrowing a bit from here, a bit from there in an evolutionary process, sometimes known as bricolage. Um, to start with, the cells which are so fundamental in detecting light are common to many, many organisms. Um, think about when you go out in the sun and you get a little tan. The cells in your arm are responding to light and it's just that property of um, responding to light, which was really the foundations for um, what ultimately in us becomes a retina. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to detect light is some, while it's something that plants can do, that fungi can do, that animals can do, that obviously isn't enough of in, in itself, uh, in itself just to, to, to make an organism successful. What you also need, at least in the very early stages, and that's where we're talking about a flatworm, is the ability to know where light is coming from. So let's say for a, a single-celled alga, if it can see where, if, if it can, if it can intuit where light is coming from by having some sort of directionality, then it can guide itself towards the light. The flatworm goes the other way. It's a shady customer. It wants to sit more or less in the dark where it's safer. And how they do that varies from organism to organism. Some of them do it by kind of shadowing effects within their sing- single cell bodies. Others, like the flatworm, which is multicellular, mm-hmm. they have little cups in which these light sensitive cells sit. So, you know, just like a crater on the surface of the earth, um, <clears throat> if the light hits from one, one, uh, anywhere from directly over above, there'll be a slight shadow on one side of that crater. And that's essentially what the eye of a flatworm does. Mm-hmm. So, from this, it's able to divine from where the light is coming, and it can go, in its case, in the opposite direction. We see over time that that cup becomes deeper, um, allowing better understanding of, of light directions. And then gradually the lip of that particular cup comes together almost to meet, just allowing a little pinprick of light coming through. And that is fascinating because it actually kind of we 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 perhaps unknowingly replicated that in the early days of cinematography, um, you know, photography rather, mm-hmm. the early daguerreotypes and stuff. The idea of a pinhole camera, yeah, um, a camera obscura, um, that in itself, just having this pinprick of light um, that comes through the 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 mouth of this cup is enough to form a very very basic image. The next step is that to prevent pathogens and nasties getting into that delicate area, that that open cup, some animals developed a kind of very fine covering of skin, transparent skin over the top of that um, to keep the bad stuff out. And it's that that ultimately became the cornea, the protective surface on our eyes. Built into that, we can get crystallines, these protein structures, which um, ultimately can be um, co-opted to bend light more effectively, and also the lens to actually focus light. The light-sensitive cells become more specialized over time. And ultimately, what you end up with is the kind of, uh, the beginnings of the kind of eye that we've got. It's Every stage of, of this particular development, this, these particular developments is still out there in certain animals. You know, um, 
we can see the flatworm that's often used as an example in biology classes, but there are plenty of other organisms which um, are still at these intermediate stages and, and, and probably in all likelihood will, will, will stay there for as long as humanity is around. Mm. So um, each of these little points um, in the evolution of the eye remains uh, out there, remains available for us to examine. It's fascinating how how this evolves and how it, you know, as is, as is true for evolution for many things, it, it will not continue on. It will stay at one stage for some species exactly. and you know, for others. I think you kind of mentioned it, but it does keep going past what humans have in, in some ways. Some animals are able to uh, see UV light and they can see in the dark and, you know, all of these other things. So tell us about, you know, how... I think of birds, you know, color plays a big role for, for birds, uh, for bees. Uh, there's a lot of different, uh, aspects of vision that are necessary for other animals, um, in different ways than for humans. Uh, maybe talk about some of these more, I don't want to say higher. I just kind of given a kind of attribution to it, but a kind of, there's definitely a difference in that they can see and, and do things because of that, that we can't. And there's a type of, um, it's interesting because as we were talking about with that, that big philosophical point, how would the world look for us if we could, you know, have night vision, if you will, or, you know, we could, you know, see UV rays, you know, like what would, what would, what would it be for us? So what, what are the things we could do? And it would be so interesting, but it does happen that way for other uh, types of animals. So just talk about how it's different in that way, or maybe better in some ways. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Now, of course, we can use computer vision to kind of mm -hmm. give us the simulation of that kind of experience, and, and we can start to appreciate what it is that other, other animals see. So yeah. <clears throat> we can see, you know, our parts, the, 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 if you like, the human-centric part of the visual spectrum, but going off to either side, um, on, one, on, the, on, on the one side is sort of infrared, um, on the other is ultraviolet. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so infrared will be what we will be talking about when we're thinking about night vision. Um, it's an important component of night vision. Unfortunately, since we're warm-blooded animals, having um, cells, you know, vi uh, visual cells which res respond to that part of the spectrum is difficult because the heat of our bodies kind of kind of um, interferes with that. So hence we need equipment like night vision goggles and things like that to do the job for us. But for other animals, um, for instance, some kinds of fish, their vision does go into that part of the spectrum. And what that allows them to do, of course, is to navigate more effectively um, under certain conditions underwater. Amphibians, too, are pretty good at this. You know, some people might say, aha, but what about, um, say, vampire bats? They're, they're, they're warm-blooded and, and they can see infrared. Well, they don't exactly see it in quite that same way. They have, they have specialized um, organs which allow them to home in on heat, but it's not quite the same as vision. Um, similar with snakes, you know, they follow the uh, the heat of their, their, their prey's bodies, but they do so in a way which is akin to, but not exactly the same as vision. <clears throat> At the other end of the spectrum, ultraviolet is something that um, we're not capable of seeing. And, and I, I should say that, um, yeah, there's, it's kind of, as you say, not a good idea to make sort of value judgments about who's got the best this or that or which is higher, which is lower. But, you know, we are 
and of course fundamentally mammals and mammals evolved in this uh this world in which uh first appeared and spent a very large part of um early mammalian development under conditions in which dinosaurs were rampaging around the earth and eating anything that that <laughs> that dead stick its nose out of a burrow. And that meant that really we evolved, our mammals evolved, um, under conditions where they were just desperately trying not to get eaten by, by, um, the undisputed rulers of the earth at the time, the, the, the reptilians. That meant that ultimately they lived either nocturnal or, um, burrowing underground lives or both. And that bequeathed a certain, um, certain properties to mammalian vision. Um, and that's why, you know, in terms of color vision, at least color vision being relatively un- unimportant at night or you know, underground, that's why many mammals think about your dog, your cat, or really pretty much any mammal you could name have relatively poor color vision. So when you tell your, your poor dog to go and fetch the red ball, <laughs> your she has no concept of the color red. We, however, as primates are lucky because at a certain point in primate evolution, uh, a genetic mutation gave us the additional, um, cone that we, re- that, that has given us in turn this beautiful color vision. So in terms of mammals where we have really quite good, um, color vision, but, uh, n- you know, notwithstanding that we still don't see in ultraviolet, although some people have undergone eye operations, do uh, are actually able to see the faint glow of a um I, uh, you barely ever see them anymore but those those ultraviolet machines that they used to check banknotes with mm-hmm. um they can see the glow from those following certain operations um small recompense i think for the damage that unfortunately has happened to their eyes but yeah in terms of ultraviolet um light this can be this contains a huge amount of important information for certain animals for instance, um, it's a facility which is used by many bird species, by bees as well. Um, it allows animals to navigate the world more effectively and more efficiently. Think about pollinators such as bees. Mm-hmm. The way they see the world, the way they see um, the patterns on flowers is is something which we can you know, barely imagine, but it's almost like each, so some flowers almost have landing strips for the, for the bees that are, that are encoded in the colors of their, of their petals. Mm-hmm. Um, birds communicate with each other in terms of their plumage using, um, colors which are only really available or, or visible through, um, the ability to see ultraviolet. And so, for instance, a starling, um, Starlings are relatively common throughout the northern hemisphere. To us, they look relatively bland, but seen under from the perspective, you know, aided by computer computer vision, seen through this perspective, they're an absolute riot of color. You know, so the way that we see the world is not objectively necessarily how other animals do. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we a, a further example of that just quickly is when we go to a coral reef and. You know, I tell the students this is one of the most intense predatory environments on the planet. And the obvious question that the students often ask about that is, well, if there are so many predators, if there's so much danger here, why are the fish so brilliantly colored? And the answer is because when you look at the um, at the world through a fish's eyes, if you like, 
those colours are so different to the way that we see them. A, a brilliant yellow damselfish, for instance, stands out to us like a beacon as it swims through um, the water above a, a coral head. To another fish, however, it looks really quite grey. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I, I guess it, it, it's just a, a, an indication of the way that we see the world and the way that other animals see the world it is is very, very different. Um Ultraviolet and, and infrared are two parts. Another part is uh, um, is polarized light. Mm-hmm. That gives a huge amount of information again to to, to bees, which we mentioned earlier. Um, it's something we can't see. It's a third property of light, but one that we can't see. But it's one that can be used and and has actually been harnessed by people to find their way around. Uh, the Vikings in, interestingly managed to work out a way to see polarized light or, or to be able to use. Um, sunstones, as they call them, these crystals to be able to find the sun on cloudy days mm. by um, essentially picking out polarized light. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting the different aspects of of light, and uh, especially with bees, it seems to be with with flowers and color and bees a coevolution in their in their yeah. and how they evolved, and it's just really really uh, fascinating. I guess on the the last thing here, I guess on vision is. You know, if we're seeing the world in one way, but, you know, animals see it in different ways. Interestingly, um, you know, if you take the, you know, tenets of sexual selection, there is a role of beauty and aesthetics. Um, it you know, depends on, I guess, uh, also, uh, you know, who you ask as well. Uh, there, there are many people that will, uh, have many things to say about beauty and aesthetics and the role of that. It's just not all just about necessarily sex or for procreation. Uh, sometimes it can be from other things. But um, what do you think about with vision, the role that beauty and aesthetics have for, uh, for many animals or different animals and for us as humans based on this idea of vision? Yeah, so that's something I, I, I sort of dip into in the book, and it, it's – it's a bit of a minefield, of course, because beauty really is um, in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it, the, the concept of what beauty is, is is something, of course, that has been debated by philosophers for, for millennia. Um, we each have a slightly different perspective on what is beautiful and what isn't beautiful. And yet, at the same time, we also agree quite a lot as well. Um, this is shaped by our culture, by our experiences by all sorts of subjective inputs. So I guess the the question here about vision is, you know, how do we understand, I guess, more abstractly, so much of our ideas about beauty and aesthetics are, are not only unique to humans, so we can understand certain aspects of sexual selection or other animals, but I guess for, for us as humans, since that's probably the best information we have, you know, how, how do we, I guess, what is the role, I guess, and how we define what, what is, you know, beauty and what is, you know, aesthetically pleasing based on our sense of a vision. That's how we get a, a lot of those ideas from that one sense. Um, yeah, and you mentioned this in the book. So, so what are your, I guess, thoughts on, on the idea of beauty and aesthetics? Yeah, so the idea of beauty is a, is a, is a fascinating one. I mean, it's something that's been debated by philosophers for millennia, with some philosophers coming down on the side of the idea that beauty is an objective, um, property that 
you know, there is something genuinely beautiful about something that it can be appreciated by all. And others arguing from the other perspective, which is that beauty really is a subjective thing and that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the truth, as so often, lies somewhere between those two points, although which one of those poles that you go closest to depends, I guess, on your own personal perspective. Um, evolutionary biologists have tried to define aesthetics and, and beauty in the, in the world around us in terms of beauty being some kind of property which encourages us to make good decisions. So, for instance, we may see beauty in a, in a landscape and that landscape potentially will be some, some place which is, which at least in, in prehistoric times would have been a good place for us to live. You know, often if you see a, a, a landscape picture, it'll probably have woods, i.e. shelter. It'll probably have a lake, maybe, um, i.e. a source of, a source of water and potentially an important, um, important resource for our prey animals that, that so is it is in this framework that evolutionary biologists have tried to explain it in terms of mate choice um beauty encourages us to i guess you know make good choices of, of, of partners in terms of picking a partner who is um going to produce healthy offspring um and it's going to be um, fecund and it's going to be um, able to produce large numbers of offspring, I suppose. That would be the evolutionary explanation for it. But in our day-to-day -day lives, of course, <laughs> things are a lot more complicated than that. We can't distill anyone's characteristics or anyone's value down to any single uh, measure like that. We we know what we like when we see it. Um, and I, I don't think we necessarily look, at, look around on it when we're say on on a on a dating app and think this person looks like they they could have more children than that person <laughs> the, the human mind doesn't work like that but yeah mm. these, these I, I think are, are at least starting points for a discussion about what what is beauty and and and, and i guess also by the same token what isn't but it's a very very hard one to answer yeah it is it is a fascinating one um <clears throat> i had a i had um uh is it Richard Prum? He wrote this book on the evolution of beauty. Um, and, uh, he's an ornithologist and kind of created some of the phylogenic tree for, for birds and things like that. And super, super, super awesome. Wonderful guy. We had a long conversation about his book, which is a, I've read it a handful of times. It's, it's really good, but it has, he has obviously his critics and he believes that, um, beauty is not just for sexual selection. There are other things going on with animals and including ourselves. And, um, it's absolutely fascinating. It's, yeah. it's so fascinating to think about beauty and aesthetics in the natural world and how we create beauty and why it's important or why it isn't. Or, and, um, you know, obviously a large, large part of that is, <clears throat> large part of that is, it's through vision. Although you can, you know, um, you know, hear, hear a piece of music and, and also say, you know, that that's a beautiful, you know, Absolutely. melody or thing. So that's, there's that piece of it as well. It's a wonderful Which, perspective. So, sorry. Just one, one yeah. really interesting thing that I found whilst I was doing the research for the book was that, you know, we, 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 we look at the people around us and we, 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 we may get a certain feeling as to who we find attractive, maybe who we, who we think is more, more generally just, um, beautiful or what have you but there's a, a really interesting experiment whereby um they took the faces of a large number of people and then amalgamated those um using a computer program to produce um 
the average face from all those people. And the result of that was startling because the, if you like, the average person, you would expect that person to be relatively middle of the road, relatively, you know, fairly attractive, but not very attractive. Actually, the person that was created by this averaging process was more attractive than any other single person that went into creating that, um, creating that, um, that, that image. And I think what that tells us is that actually we're not looking for something, someone who is say unusually beautiful. What we're looking for is someone who, who corresponds roughly to the population norm, if you like. And, and so that really, that changed the way that I kind of viewed this particular, um, particular question. It's yeah. this, this average face is one where, you know, the, the features, and the quirks of individual people have essentially been ironed out by the averaging process. And what we get is is actually, you know, in any other walk of life, you'd think of this averaging process producing something which is bland and and, and lacking lacking in characteristic features. And yet that face is, um, by the people who judged this thing in, in the experiment about which I'm talking, was the one that nearly everybody found the most attractive. So I think that is interesting. I, I think I think your correspondent is is absolutely right. You know that there is more to beauty. There is more to our perception of aesthetics than simply talking about um, mate choice. Yeah. Nevertheless, mate choice has played a very very important part in that, and it does, like I say, gives sure. a starting point in this in this fascinating field. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's jump to sound. Um, sound is super, super interesting. Uh, I'm a big music person. So sound is, is, you know, you know, when people always have these things where they say, if you, if you couldn't have one of your ma- five major senses, I, I can never say which one I don't want. I, I, I would be, <laughs> oh man, music is huge for me. It's huge. So, you know, sound is, is one way of, of, of interacting with that, of course. Um, you talk about the different aspects of sound. <clears throat> um, so as opposed to more of just the kind of, I guess, biology of it, I guess I'm interested in some of the things that you bring up. Is, sound has the ability to impact our mood uh, and our emotions, uh, which is super interesting. Different pitches can impact our mood. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how do you how do you look at this way in which sound um, can really you know, impact our, our emotions and our mood. I'll give one example. Um, I, as I, as I, it's always a kind of like large stimulus, but as I watch films now, I, I watch all the technical things that I, that I didn't used to when I was a kid, um, or I notice it more. And I recently was watching, I think it won the, the, the Oscar for, for, for this category, but I was watching the, it's the third remake now, but, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm. Fabulous movie. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous movie. And, um, I've seen the original too, which is also good in its own right from the, from 29 or 1930. And, um, but one of the things that is super powerful about the film is obviously sound that's there. You want it to sound believable. Um, but the score is, is there's like these big, like thunderous kinds of like bass tones at certain moments where it's like this ominous kind of thing. And like when you're taking all of these things, it, 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 I can, I, I remember I've seen the new one twice and I remember watching it, especially the second time where I was like, wow, like this is like heavy mood, right? Just like, oh, 
like you know it's a war film and stuff and you know world war one was pretty brutal trench warfare all that stuff but it was the sound and the and the score pushed it it pushed that kind of mood and perception and and how we were um you know it as the viewer just to try and say like oh i kind of i'm in a different space now which would have been i think different if you didn't have that and so and this is a kind of a fun example but you can think of other examples you know high pitched versus low pitch or, you know so tell us yeah just about the impact that sound has on our our mood and our, our emotions absolutely i mean is there another sense which can make us feel so insignificant as sound in, in these kinds of contexts i mean i talk in the chapter about as a child being at the uh, on a, a clifftop um with a huge storm rolling in um across the north sea and the, I mean, the, 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 the sights were incredible, you know, the, the various sort of sensory inputs, but the thing that cowed me, the thing that made me so terrified was this thundering bass of the waves smashing against the cliffs and the whistle of the, of, of the wind as it, as it, you know, nearly blew me off my feet. And so it was, the, it was really the sound that created that environment and, and, and a little bit like in the way that the score really makes, um, all quiet on the Western Front, or, or indeed, you know, where would Jaws be without that incredible oh, yeah. score? Um, Halloween, yeah. same. These, these, you know, what the director called cattle prods of sound. Um, we, we can be directly manipulated by sound uh, in, in a way which really the other senses can't provide for us. Um, uh, uh, one of my favorite examples of this actually is, um, you know, our, our Sonic range, the, the sonic range refers to the range of human hearing, and that starts roughly, I mean, it varies between us, of course, but it starts at roughly 20 hertz, 20 cycles per second. If we go just a fraction below that, say 19, 18, even 17 hertz, we can't hear it, but it, it's such a deep bass that we can, we can feel it. Mm. Some, some people can. But what people report when they, I don't want to say here, I'll say experience. When they experience sounds, especially loud sounds around this thing, they, they don't hear it, they experience it. It makes them feel incredibly uneasy. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's something which is, you know, so pe people get, walk into a house and they feel really uncomfortable about something. And, and sometimes they put that down to supernatural phenomena. Um, <laughs> it's interesting just how many, um, examples of haunted houses can be explained by the presence of underlying natural um, sine waves of around 17 or 18 hertz, you know? So this is something we're not even conscious of it, and yet it's influencing our moods. Um, it's making us feel weird and uncomfortable. At the other end of the scale, so we're, our, our hearing range goes up to about um, then 20 kilohertz, 20,000 cycles per second. Um I mean, only babies can hear that and very young children. I'm, as we get older, we, we lose about a hertz a day, something like that. So, um, I, I, I can no longer hear the highest pitch sounds, but, um, very, very high pitch sounds draw our attention immediately. Think about the cry of a baby, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. that's something which really well, it's, it's absolutely unignorable. And there's a reason for that. I know that the, the babies who cried at that frequency were attended to. Um, it's a very strong selective pressure. So babies are selected to cry at a frequency that we simply can't ignore. 
um, which is no consolation to people on, a, on an aeroplane with a crying baby on it, but still. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that if, if there's a universal noise or a universal sound of communication in the animal kingdom, it, it's probably the scream. Mm. Um, when people were given different sounds made by different animals um, and asked to interpret what they meant, you know, people couldn't really intuit what was meant by almost any of the sounds that were made apart from one, and that's the scream, because nearly all animals scream um, at a high-pitched sound. And it's, if you like, the universal signal of danger, and it's universally understood to be, um, to mean that an animal is scared. Um, these really high-pitched noises go, you know, straight into our brains um, and sort of trigger a fight or flight kind of response. So anything in, in that's very sudden and very high pitched, say the, the scraping of a, I'm sorry to do this to your, to your listeners, but the scraping of a, of say cutlery across a plate or, or something like that, or, or nails down a blackboard, you know, anything that gives us these, these screechy sounds, it, it just, ugh, it gives us a visceral feeling of, uh, of, of strife, if you like. So yeah, sound, sounds make, sounds just singular sounds like that. Um, play an incredibly important uh, part in our lives. And then when we combine sounds and we arrange sounds and we come up with something like music, then, of course, it contributes so much to our lives in a very different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, going back to the subjectivity, I mean, I think there's – I don't think anybody – I know that was, I love the sound of nails on a chalkboard. That what? sounds great. No, no, I'm saying, I don't think I know anybody that, that would say that. Fair enough. Sorry. Which is the point, right? It's the, that's the point. It's, a, it almost is like a universal. I do think it's a, it is a, a, a thing of that maybe it's, um, you know, maybe some people don't, it doesn't bother them as much, but I don't yeah. think I've ever heard anyone say they find enjoyment out of it. It's interesting about music because this is so subjective. I mean, it's so subjective, the combination of sounds and, and how you can put them together and, and, and to make melody and rhythm and you know, all these harmonies. And, uh, it's interesting to, to always get that, uh, subjective, you know, perspective that, you know, I can like something so much. Yeah. And then I let someone else listen to it and they're like, that's terrible. I don't that's like a, any of that. That's, that's such awful. A disappointment, isn't it? When that happens, when you look, yeah, right. And you share it and they go, oh, that sucks. That's awful. <laughs> but it, but it, it also depends on how it's, a, it's sort of the same with film. I think with sound is a little bit more or music rather is more maybe visceral, but you know, I think it's, it's something that is, um, it really depends on the person and what they're looking for and how they listen to me. How I listen to me, I've realized is how I listen to music. I mean, I know it's true for everybody, but it's just really different than, I mean, I'm listening to different things and, and, you know, my analytical brain is turned on and I find enjoyment out of that. But so I like stuff that's usually very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I can listen to, 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 you know, heavy metal or fusion jazz or, you know, something like that. And, you're like, that's too much going on. I don't, there's too many things going on. I need just something real straightforward. Uh, but I like that stuff too. And it's just, it's interesting how we, we have these different, uh, connections with, with music. And obviously that's, you know, primarily through, through sound. Um, well, that's a lot, it's a lot to do with our culture on, on one hand and our yeah. development, what, we, what we're experienced with. You know, I, I'd have to make an awful confession, but I really, really dislike jazz, um, especially modern jazz. Um, but the yeah. fact that many, many people love it 
suggest the problem isn't with the music, but with, but with me. And I've seen some really fascinating research, which has looked into exactly, you know, why it is that we like particular kinds of music or, or dislike others. And I really, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but, but one theory behind it is that, you know, the more we're exposed to it, particularly in early life, um, of a, to a particular genre, the more we kind of learn its, its, its kind of rules, how it's operating. Yeah. Yeah, then yeah. beyond that, what we're after is, or what, what our brain is looking for as a, you know, the brain is this incredible pattern, uh, pattern seeker, pattern recognizer. Mm-hmm. And the brain is essentially looking for the pattern. It's, it, it's got to follow these rules, but not too closely. If it follows the rules too closely, the music becomes predictable. Think about a, a nursery rhyme and it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't stimulate us. If the brain can't pick up any pattern, it can't pick pick up these rules, it doesn't understand where the music is going, it frustrates us and we don't like it. It's somewhere in between these two, there's a sweet spot where the music follows the rules enough but surprises us just enough that we really yes. enjoy, we get a kick out of it. Now, what's happening with, with jazz is that I'm not really understanding the rules. So to me, what to, to, to maybe what other people sounds like this amazing score this 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 fantastic uh this fantastic track to me just sounds confusing and challenging and my, my I, I get this negative reaction but if i was to invest the time and, and here's the other thing you can teach yourself the rules of a new kind of music so you're not i'm not stuck with always hating jazz if, if i'm prepared to invest the time to learn if you like the, the very very i say rules as, as a you know it was it was something built out of a flat pack obviously it's not but but there are certain um processes within music which um which recur uh, throughout throughout genres if i was to invest the time to learn jazz i, I would eventually come to come to appreciate it um mm-hmm. so so yeah we, we're not stuck but we, we are really strongly shaped by our early early life and what we yeah. when we're growing up yeah, I think it depends. Yeah, culture, personality, um, experiences. I think with music, it's interesting because, um, you know, some people get to it. You know, I, I've said this, I think, before in other conversations, you know, <clears throat> I never got the big deal with the Beatles for a long time. <laughs> I, I couldn't get it. I know everyone like, you, you know, just lauded them and they're amazing and all this and that. I just kind of thought they were overrated for the <laughs> longest time. I was yeah. like, I don't. I don't get it. It's not because it's it's old. I mean, that the 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 timing of it doesn't bother me. It's it's just I just was like, all right, like you know, I don't play <laughs> guitar and I could play these songs. Like it's not that difficult. Like, and it took me a long time to kind of get it. And I had to have people explain it to me. And like I said, you sit down and we're gonna listen to this together. And I need you to tell me what's going on and why this is so amazing. And Beautiful. once I once I got that, then I then I, then it's like kind of like the veils pulled over, and it's just like, oh, I see it now. I totally get it. And I quite enjoy the Beatles now. So I that, guess that, the thing that's, that's what I need with modern jazz. You see, I need somebody to sit down and explain. <laughs> someone sit down and listen yeah. to Miles Davis with you. Yeah, I think it's I think with with jazz. I mean, I. My understanding of this, I mean, I'm not a big, you know, kind of a jazz expert. Excuse me. I think with jazz is you can't expect anything. You mm-hmm. can't have predictions. And there's a big freedom in that. But the biggest thing to look at with jazz is themes. 
this is what I, I find with jazz is you find a theme and then it's how in the improvisational piece, how do we find all the different iterations of that? You know, we're going to take this theme and we're going to just, you know, the sax players doing this and the trumpets doing this and then the piano's doing this. And then how do we get all that to kind of go enough together? And when you're kind of thinking about it thematically as opposed to linearly, it, I feel jazz hits better and more because it is a big in the moment creative kind of thing. And to see where are people going with it and where, where are you going to, and where are you going to go with it together with somebody? This is, I think it's a little bit more structured. Um, but this is like with progressive music, whether it's, you know, prog rock from the sixties and seventies or whether it's, you know, some of the more progressive, you know, kind of metal or hard rock stuff that goes on now. It's a, it's a sort of thing. You'll have these big 15 minute songs, but it's, it's themes. And because it, it's, because it gives you that it's, it's definitely a, um, it's definitely a, something to have your patience with, but it's when you hear that theme in a different key or a different scale and it comes back and it gives that resolution in a different way, it's so satisfying, right? But you have to, it's a different kind of listen, right? If you're just looking for like the, you know, the kind of like four, four verse, chorus, verse, maybe a bridge, <laughs> that's a little bit different yeah. than jazz or, you know, other types of genres of music. But that's the really interesting thing is that everybody's different. Everyone's going to pull uh, for certain things. And what I've maybe I think as I got older, learned that how do I find I had a long conversation with a, a friend of mine about this on, on the podcast where we talked about um, uh, appreciation, uh, the, the idea, the, the idea of appreciate. Why do we appreciate or should we appreciate certain things? It was a really interesting conversation and music came up. And I, I've, I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I've found with different sounds and with, with music particularly, I can, I basically have to set myself with those rules and those sort of expectations, that kind of schema, if you will. And I can appreciate it more if, I, if I'm not comparing it to other things where this is better or not better than this. And I can, I can find the value in it. And then, and then your horizon just it pushed further. Cause now I can listen to the Beatles and I'm like, I get it. I, I mean, I get it now. I get it. I, mean, I can listen to Radiohead. I just, I thought they were terrible for a long time. Now I get it. I get radio. I, I get it. So still a little misanthropic for me, but I get it. It makes sense. It makes sense. It's, it's interesting though, you know, people, can uh when they're confronted by by a sudden change in 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 things can get very annoyed by it so i I, this is uh an anecdote i heard i I obviously wasn't there to experience it but obviously if you trace the path of western classical music uh from back in its earliest stages all the way through uh the romantic period and, and so on and so forth there's an evolution and a change and people have adapted to that. People still, of course, have their favorites, but they adapted to it. It didn't viscerally make them angry, but I believe I'm right in saying that um, when the rites of spring was first performed um, in the early part of the 20th century, people stood up and walked out of the concert, of the the concert hall. They were furious about it. They, they thought it broke all the rules. They, it, it, it literally angered them. The music angered them. And these were people, you know, with a strong appreciation of, of, of what at the time was the, the main form of music that they were 
that, that they were used to. And so, yeah, it's music has this ability to potentially make us angry if, if, if it doesn't satisfy what we, we've come to expect. But at the same time, of course, as you say, far more importantly, it brings us an incredible amount of joy and nothing I think exemplifies that better than something I relate to in, in, in the book, which is, you know, we, we think of stone age people as being, as living short, hard lives of, you know, perennial struggle of, against the, the cold, against hunger, against um, violence, what have you. And yet these people thousands and thousands of years ago were still making musical instruments, basic musical instruments. Um, one was yeah. Southern Germany, which was essentially, uh, they'd taken the, the leg bone of, of a, a bird, a little like a vulture, um, mm. hollowed it out, made little holes in it and, and, and essentially created something like a, a penny whistle. So music is that important to us that they were prepared to invest the time, um, you know, take time out from this, tough challenging schedule to make a musical instrument music is incredibly important to us there's no there's no getting around it yeah no uh just say on that i mean I, i've heard this before i don't know if it's the same one or if it's just a very early one but <clears throat> when i was in uh in brussels in, in belgium i i went to the um museum of musical instruments i think there's oh. a few of these around the world but it was uh, you know i was i was wasn't there for very long and i wanted to see some things just doing the tourist thing and and I'm, I saw there was a museum of musical instruments and I don't know if we have one here in the States. And I said, well, this sounds great. I'm a big music lover. Let's, let's do this. So I, I go there and it's cool because you get the kind of like the, the headset. And what you can do is you, you, there's like a, like a small, looks like a kind of like an old iPod kind of thing. And it's like a device and each <clears throat> you go around, it's like three or four floors and you go around the, the museum. And they have all these instruments, obviously behind glass or whatever, for the most part, from all over the world, from Asia, Africa, you know, the, you know Eastern Europe, all over the place. Amazing. Um, from all different millennia. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? And what you can do is you can, on the on the on the headphones, you, there's a number underneath, uh, kind of like a label, and there's a number, and you push the number on the device, and you can hear the device, the the, the instrument. Which is marvelous. It's, yeah. it's, it's marvelous. It's, it's such a wonderful experience. Cause I was like, well, I'm going to go and just going to see instruments hanging around. Like, you know, but the fact I could hear it, you know, and it wasn't like on a screen or TV and it was, it was, you could, you know, walk around. So it was so cool. But one of them, I, f I forget where it was in the museum was one of these kind of from like a, a leg bone or whatever. It was like, a, yeah. sort of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. One of the first musical instruments and, um, and it was a, a, a type of whistle. Yeah. And, uh, and hearing that was, I mean, just, you know, it was, it was spectacular. It was, but it's interesting exactly what you're saying for a long time in our evolutionary history, we've taken time out to, to, to create sounds or to create music that does impact our mood one way or the other. And I think that that's super interesting for our human evolution. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we hear a, a, a familiar track, something that is emotionally important to us, um, that hits just the right spot, if you like, <laughs> in, our, in our ears and our, in our audible brain. But we, we get this, we get a squirt of dopamine, you know, this sort of reward. Um, mm -hmm. so clearly it's important to us, but also uh, many of your listeners, certainly myself, uh, have experienced this feeling of free song where you, you know, suddenly all, 
you, you hear this thing and, and the hairs stand up on, yeah. on oh, yeah. your arms. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful feeling, but it's, there are very few things in life that can, can give you that extraordinary feeling, but music is certainly one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, how this works. <clears throat> so I want to, I want to jump to, um, taste. Taste uh, is fascinating. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the, the last two major five senses, but I want to give some time to taste, uh, something that I've been super interested in, uh, over the past couple of years. Um, you said that there's five primary tastes. You can kind of go over those. So we have five to 10,000 taste buds for humans, but other animals have less and have more. That's super, that was super interesting to know that. I guess the one key question here though is why or how rather do our taste buds evolve as we get older? I've certainly had this happen to me. Um, and I know other people have told me this, you know, things I would never eat when I was 25, I'm now eating. Um, how does, what's going on in our mouth? Like what is going on? So you just kind of give us the overview of the, you know, five primary chase buds and all that, but how does this evolve and change within our own development? Well, there's good news and bad news here. I mean, we can cultivate, um, a certain, Ability, you know, our, our taste ability. All of our senses are, are, are very, very trainable. Okay, that, that's that's one thing. So we, our senses adapt um, according to our lifestyles, and you know, we get certain parts of our our senses are upregulated if if we activate them more, and, and and you know, hence you know, professional tasters can really train their senses. And so that that's one thing we can train ourselves potentially to 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 like foods that at first perhaps we found challenging. That's certainly something. But a big part of this, I'm afraid, I'm sorry to say, is simply the process of aging knocks out the sharpness of, of certain elements of your sense of taste. So that, you know, when you taste, uh, say, cabbage or, or Brussels sprouts when you, when you're a, a, a wee kid, <laughs> what you're tasting really is the bitterness. And bitterness is actually our most important taste, although we think of it as perhaps our least important. It's our most important taste, and those bitterness receptors really kick in for kids, and they just no, they they <laughs> they reject it completely. They spit it out. They don't want a bar of it. Um. So yeah, <laughs> as you say, we ha we have these uh, currently five. It's very very likely to be expanded upon, but let's stick with the five for now. Um, we have of course um a receptor for salt. We have a receptor for sugary taste. Um, we have um, a, a receptor for bitterness, which is basically means alkaline uh, pro properties that are alkaline. Um, sourness, which um, by the same token is um, acidic. And we also have the most recent member of this taste club, which is umami, which is um savoriness um but really it makes absolute sense for our taste sense to be able to detect the key uh nutrients in our environment umami essentially is a protein detector um obviously our sweet detector is our, our, our ability to taste sweet things uh, lines up with our ability to to taste carbohydrates and so on the most important one as i already said is bitterness and the, and the reason that's important is that you know Rather than thinking about that taste or really, I guess any of our other senses as, as being the means by which, by which we enjoy the world, actually our senses are, form 
really a protective function. Our eyes allow us to see the approach of a predator or the edge of a cliff that we're about to fall off, for instance. It, with taste, it, it's something um, more immediate than than even even that, which is that our mouth is the portal to the rest of our body. It's the it's the means by which um, foreign objects get into us, um, and uh, for the most part. And bitterness is often a signal of um, the kind of toxins that plants load their their stems and their leaves with to prevent them being eaten by herbivores. And so these toxins, which of course in some cases can of course kill us, um, are something to be avoided at all cost. And consequently, our system of taste has a huge number of bitterness receptors, a much more diverse range of bitterness receptors than any other kind of receptor in that five taste family, which immediately alerts us to the presence of poisons and toxins um, that we potentially might ingest. In fact, although the tongue map is um, a nonsense idea, this idea that you know one part of the tongue tastes sweet and the other part of the tongue tastes salt and so on, that of course isn't true. Um, however, there is a, a particularly intense um, concentration of bitterness receptors right at the back of our tongues uh, and around the top of our throat. And that is the last ditch um, kind of uh, defense against us ingesting something which is highly bitter because that is very likely to cause us problems. And that will cause us to sort of regurgitate uh, with a degree of urgency, which may not be uh, socially acceptable, <laughs> but still it's an important part of our sense of taste. I guess, let me, let me, so I, I can kind of understand about like when we're younger how is that not static? How is that not? And it's different for everybody, I guess, right? I mean, I've known yeah. some young people that, you know, they'll eat fruits and vegetables and yeah. they like it and it's fun, you know. And how how do we, so just for example, like, I mean, when I was younger, I mean, I, I didn't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. So, I'm, you know, I'm very uh, ashamed to admit it, but I, I, I did not do that for a while. And I really got a little worried because as I got older, I said, you know, I, I need to be healthy. Like, I mean, even if I'm not eating junk food or eating at, you know, McDonald's or something like that, I, I need greens. I mean, I need, I need, I need to eat this stuff. This is good for me. Um, and there was this kind of like, I slowly started incorporating it one by one by one by one. And I, and I, I did not like this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I legitimately did not, I would not, I would almost have a, I want to say repulsive. That sounds really dramatic, but I would <laughs> not eat it. I would just spit it out. I did not like the taste, the texture, you know, but now I'll, you know, I eat, you know, uh, green beans and asparagus and broccoli and, uh, you know, snap peas and yeah. regular peas and Brussels sprouts a little bit and, you know, romaine and kale and spinach. I mean, all the, I didn't eat any of that when I was 19, right? Yeah. Or maybe, maybe a few of them, but now I eat all of it, thankfully, right? My, my yeah. doctor's very, you know, he's less, you know, uh, upset at me about it, right? You know, <laughs> so how, how do we just grow into liking this stuff? Like you're saying, there's not necessarily this map, but how do our taste buds over time just be like, you know, we, we, we hate this, but now we don't hate this. Like how does, <laughs> How does this work? Well, you can certainly cultivate a taste. I mean, I remember in a slightly similar but um, alternative example is the first time um, my dad got me a, a beer in the pub. I was <laughs> the, the, the drinking rules in, in the UK are different um, to 
many other countries. And you know, if you're having a meal, sixteen, right? You can. You well, can drink actually, before that, if you're having a meal in a in a pub and you're with an adult, you can drink before that. But oh wow! Okay. Um, okay. So my dad got me a, a, a little glass of beer, and I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever tasted. And of course, <laughs> beer, beer is also alkaline, uh, and so. But now, you know, I'm. I'm <laughs> I, I've worked hard at this problem. <laughs> I think I'm overcoming because I like beer now. But um, <laughs> we 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 can cultivate a taste. But this is a process that starts really early in life. So, you know, there are all sorts of studies showing how what um, a pregnant woman eats during uh, pregnancy um, really strongly influences what that child will um, turn to, even even as a, a, you know as a as a newborn um, in the first few days of life. So there was a, a study in France. I think it was I think it was um, it concerned anise. Uh, this, this sort of, well, obviously aniseed flavor and women in the last, um, trimester of their, their pregnancy would, would, in, in this experiment, some of them would eat anise, other ones wouldn't. And the results in the babies were really fascinating, but those who, those who were born to mothers who hadn't had anise, um, really were just either indifferent or turned off by the smell or, or taste of anise when they were suckling. Whereas, those who had uh, come from mums who had had a niece in, the, in that last trimester, you know, they they had smacked their lips. They were pretty pleased to make make remake the acquaintance of a niece as, as when they were suckling. So we start to learn about taste very very early on, and you know, anybody with young children will be no doubt familiar with this challenge that you can face when you try to get uh, young kids, in particular, to eat their greens. You know. Um, it's very difficult. You get all sorts of things just being thrown from the high chair, rejected outright. Um, yeah. go cross-eyed with fury whenever you try to give them something that is going to be good for them, but which is ultimately triggering their bitterness receptors. But a little bit, I mean, just like in the same, same determined approach that you took, a little bit of, um, dedicated uh, perseverance in the face of obstinacy can really can help to turn the tide and you, you can cultivate your taste. I don't know quite um, whether you ever go from the point of thinking that it's utterly disgusting to utterly wonderful. Maybe for some people they do, but really you just get more used to these things. You, you the, the, the alarm bells, which your bitterness receptors initially set off when they first encounter a, a particularly um, pungent alkaline with its bitter flavor. Those alarm bells don't ring perhaps so quite so strongly once you've cultivated this flavor. You, you, your body, I guess, your brain knows that it can potentially relax in the presence of this flavor and you can start to, um, you can start to work with it. But an, another part of this is, you know, just as salt, uh, sorry, sugar is important to um, kind of dial down some of the, uh, more intense effects of sourness. Salt plays a role in, uh, reducing the intensity of the experience of bitterness. So, you know, when great chefs from around the world try to combine all the different flavors, the reason that they work so well together is because they're interactive. Salt interacts with bitter taste. Sugar interacts with sour taste. Sort of, um, melding them uh in such a way that we get this perfect combination so it, it could be it could be that it, it could be simply that you know you've dialed down the, the 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 alarm bells that go off when when unusual alkalines come in it could be to do with 
uh, adding a little bit of salt, which can just take the worst effects off it. it it's it's a really fascinating question of just how we become acculturated to certain to certain foods that at first seem very very challenging. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll say, I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, IPAs are pretty overrated. Oh, I agree completely. People, people here in the United States are obsessed, obsessed with IPA oh, beer. Same here in Australia. And take the hops, it's a real, take the hops away. Uh, Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, I've tried to ask this about people, and, and I can't really get an answer. You know what I feel like it is? I feel like, yeah, maybe people do enjoy the taste of it, but I feel like a lot of people, it's it's a thing to like, so everyone kind of likes it and sort of thing. Yeah. but. And maybe it's just the high alcohol content or whatever, but I, I don't want to drink hops. I want to no. drink beer. I, I just, it's all hops right in the beginning, yeah. the middle, and the end. I yeah. just don't want to drink, you know, 10% hops. Like well, I just hops don't hops get it. Hops are bitter. So yeah. You just like, bitter. but that's the point. Yeah. I don't want an overpowering flavor oh. in my beer. I want to, I want to, you know, I don't mind if it's strong, but it, I just don't want it to be, hops all the way like i just i don't if i want to just drink hops i'll just drink it straight i don't understand but 100 um, i'm with you we should we should set up a campaign that we want beer flavored beer we don't want bloody garden flavored beer or something like that. No, just, right sometimes it's so overpowering people this is a double ipm like oh my god like it's just overload it's yeah. too much um you know and i and i think uh you know i think some places you know maybe have the right kind of mix of it but it is interesting how Again, some people, when you're talking about these five different types of primary tastes, some people have just an affinity for more things that are more bitter or more savory, more sweet. Absolutely. And it's, again, it's just really interesting. Uh, our genetics and then how, you know, I think culture plays a part here impact some of our affinities or our preferences for different senses, but with taste as well. Um, I, I guess, uh, I want to, I want to ask uh, from taste, we can move to, uh, um, uh, smell or scent. Um, I think if you ask most people, I mentioned it before, uh, if you had to get rid of one sense, like if you know the whole kind of thought experiment, most people would say smell. I think most people. Like, the I, I gotta see. And- I gotta see. I can eat my eyes. I only got two of them. I need my ears. Got to hear stuff. I mean, that's you know. And I gotta talk. Um, and 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 taste stuff and. And, uh, touch. I mean, we talked about touch early in the beginning, you know, it's super important. Most people would say, yeah, smell, you know, if I don't smell anything, it would not be great, but I could live fine. Um, or at least that's the impression people get. Why, why do you think this is? Why do you think we have a kind of disregard for, for scent or, you know, yeah. and then maybe you can talk about the process from the olfactory bulbs to the nerve to, uh, and then it goes to the, you know, orbital frontal cortex and it goes to different parts of the brain, but it, Unlike all the other senses, olfaction goes straight to the brain and it doesn't, it's not, uh, contralateral. It goes, it goes uh, straight left, left side, I believe goes left hemisphere, right side goes through your right hemisphere. Um, not like, you know, vision where it crosses, you know, like it does for most things in other senses, but you can talk about the way in which scent uh, works, but, uh, why do we give a disregard for, for scent? Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, a lot of people uh, temporarily lost their sense of smell. And I think that gave many people a, a real newfound appreciation for their sense of smell so that when it returned, um, as it did, yeah. luckily for most people, um, I think they, they looked at it with a newfound respect. I myself, um, <clears throat> I was uh, I had a bit of an accident a few years ago. Um, so the processes that connect 
the olfactory epithelium, that basically the site of um, where the receptors are, right at the top of your nose, um, uh-huh. connects through um, a piece of bone called the cribriform plate to the olfactory bulbs in the brain. Mm. It goes through that 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 little plate of bone, it, it, which let's just say for, for argument's sake, it looks a little bit like a cheese grater. So it goes through little holes in that. If unfortunately you get a bang on the head at exactly the wrong angle, it basically jars that plate and, and shears the connections off. So the nerves are broken. That's what happened to me. So I, I lost a large part of my sense of smell suddenly. And I really, really miss it. So I think when people are saying that they would be happy to lose their sense of smell, um, they're maybe not thinking it through. They're, they've been a little bit flippant. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I miss it enormously. Uh, and, of course, that impacts my sense of taste. And it also has a broader implications for the way that I relate to the world too. Um, but why generally we disregard it? Well, I think there, there's a, a few schools of thought here. One is simply that as the modern age has progressed, we've tended to move away from highly aromatic environments, say the countryside. You know, we've moved to the towns where um, there's a large amount of pollution which impacts on the sense of smell. It dulls our sense of smell. We've moved indoors where, you know, okay, there there may be certain um, smelly substances, but bouquets of flowers or, or whatever you care to name, good or bad, but really, we live in a in the modern age in the West, at least, live in a relatively depauperate smell environment. Now, against that backdrop, if we look back um, a few hundred years, the primary theory behind how disease spread was uh, this miasma theory, which was an idea that disease spread through smells. You go look at the Black Death. People thought that it was smell that conducted this thing. And that was given further credence by the fact that, you know, in the terminal stages of, of, of this particular disease, people had a very characteristic, very unpleasant smell. And so smell was then implicated as the conveyor of all things that are terrible. So that's one thing. And then against this background, we have the Age of Enlightenment with all the wonderful things that it brought us. But it placed a premium on direct observation, which usually meant observing things by sight and to some extent by sound. Smell for us in the West has always been a hard thing to nail down. It's, it feels vague, ineffable. Um, we can't directly measure it. And, and consequently, a combination of these two things, this idea it's a disease spreader and the fact that it seems so hard to get to grips with, led certain philosophers, certain scientists to sort of pronounce their ideas on it being relatively unimportant, relatively primitive, uh, relatively animalistic, and gave this idea that, you know, we were moving away from having an, an important sense of smell, that that really these this this sort of sort of sense was important to animals, but we'd raised ourselves above animals, uh, in this ludicrous idea of the world. Um so that smell was just a, a really secondary importance, if that. So that I think is is really where where this comes from. But you only have to look a little more broadly, go beyond the West to to look at other cultures and see just how central the sense of smell is to to, to their lives. I'm talking about you know people who live in across the world in in parts of 
Central and South America, um, uh, Asia, Africa. Um, and these cultures really, um, really celebrate smell and smell is incredibly important to them. Um, and they get a much more rich experience of their lives in general through this. So yeah, this, this relegation of smell to the, the, the second division of our senses is primarily a, a Western and primarily a modern thing. What, what do you think? You know, I think some people can tend to, you know, have a, a stronger sense of smell than others. Uh, oh, for sure. For, 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 and I think this is true for a lot of, um, uh, other senses. But, um, what about with other animals? I mean, obviously, you know, my cat's sense of smell is much better than mine. I mean, I, I, my nose is essentially broken. I, I can't smell anything very practically. <laughs> my, my cat though is, is definitely, uh, attuned to our, you know, other, other animals. Um, you know, why, why do we think that it, it, olfaction works differently in, in humans and it does for other animals? Is this just a kind of, you know, basic kind of evolutionary survival thing? Uh, when we have yeah. different things, but what, what, what other aspects of this do you think that even, you can say with even just within mammals that yeah. there's a difference here? What, what do you, what, how do you understand this? Again, partly it goes back to, um, those early days, those early, you know, tens, hundreds of years of, of, of early mammalian evolution, which occurred at night and underground where, you know, vision remains important. I mean, you, you can't argue against that, but it does place a, a greater importance on the other senses, smell being one of them. Now we, even as scientists working with animals and, and looking at how animals relate to the world, if you look at the number of papers that are published, more papers are published about vision than about any other sense, even in other animals. This reflects our own worldview of what's important. But in actual fact, there's a realization now that that, that really, for the, probably the majority of animals on this planet, the most important single sense is smell. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Um, the most important single sense is smell. Um, so take your cat, for instance. I mean, your cat's sense of vision, you know, our, our sense of vision if, if, if everything's working fine is, is about 2020. And that simply means we can see something from a distance of 20 feet that we should be able to see from a distance of 20 feet. Um, that's, I mean, that's a simplified version, but that's relatively really all it means. Your cat has to be stood for a distance of four feet from that same object to see what you can see at a distance of 20 feet, which would put them right on the borderline of being declared legally blind for, for, you know, for things like driving. Um, <laughs> the cats should drive, but I'm just, I'm just trying to put it into context. So your cat relies then on other senses and smell is incredibly important. They have incredibly acute sense of hearing, but they have an amazing sense of smell. Dogs very similarly. They can smell things that, that we simply can't imagine, um, in co uh, concentrations that we simply can't imagine. However, <clears throat> Before I give the, the idea that really we are essentially, you know, just noobs stumbling around in this chemical world, picking up absolutely nothing. We are actually, we, we do actually occasionally outperform even dogs when we go head to head with them in scientifically, scientifically conducted tests of the, you know, the, 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 the threshold at which we can smell certain things. Not many, it has to be said, that dogs can smell 
most things better than we can, but there are some things that we can smell better than they. And again, this points to evolution. So dogs and cats, um, primarily carnivores, they can smell things that have been important to them throughout their evolution, the smell of other animals, the smell of, um, you know, things that that relate to, to prey animals, meat, what have you. They're not quite as good at smelling vegetable-based things, which again points to our early evolution as, um, you know, vegetarians, primarily fruit eaters, um, omnivores probably, but, but vegetation has always been important to, uh, the human diet and, and was a, 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 of even more importance back in our early evolution. We, so our threshold for smelling certain things like that is, is, is lower than theirs, which is impressive. You know, we, we have a much better sense of smell than we imagine, even though there is a tendency to imagine that we are worse than most mammals. We, we, we're not as bad as we think, actually. And we, we, we can, as you said, train it to be better. It's interesting how we, we, I feel like a lot of people, I mean, I didn't know a whole lot about this in terms of smell. We we do have a kind of disdain for it, but I think it is something that if you can grow and learn to appreciate it, it can be something that is, um, you know, really, really, really important as you're, you know, d- d- discussing you know, that it is, it is very, uh, you know, essential, obviously. Uh, so last, last major sense here is, uh, touch. We talked about in the beginning. Um, you know, you can go where you want with this. Uh, you know, you can talk about the prior lobes or whatever, but it gets to really about the role of, of human touch and feeling sensation. You know, there's, there's nothing like a good hug, um, you know, or, you know, you know pat on the back, you know, like, you know, kind of, you know, very, you know, can be very affectionate. Obviously, there's you know uh, terrible ways in which you can you know touch people for for in, in various contexts. Uh, you can you know hit somebody you know whatever. I mean, there's there's obviously negative aspects to it as well. But this idea of touch and feeling and sensation that we have uh, a lot of the times through you know our our hands and feet, but also just through our our, our skin and our bodies as well. well. Talk about this importance for touch um, for us as humans and, and and where we see that elsewhere in the in the animal kingdom. Yeah, so touch is incredibly important, and we have this, um, we we have this, as you say, difficulty because you know, touch can be good and it can be bad. But during again the pandemic, we had this this situation where people were isolated from one another, and and I think it was at that time when people were uh, coining the phrase "touch starvation" because we started to realize just how incredibly important it is to our lives to be. Uh, to, to, you know, to, to touch one another. So we have two real parallel systems in the, in the human body. We have a system of touch which allows us to explore the world, to, to, um, to feel its physical properties, to, to, you know, pick up information from the surface of an object or, to, or to feel its heft or, you know, just to explore. And often when we do that, we will, drag our fingertips across the surface of, of that particular object. Because much like the way that a stylus on a, an old-fashioned record player works, the kind of dynamic movement of your finger across that will allow you to to, to feel uh, the object um, much more effectively. It's just how our touch system, our, our sensory system, and our, our receptors of touch are, are, are developed. So, you know, moving our hands across something will will tend to allow us to get a, a better idea of, of, it, of its feel. 
But that sense of movement is also important in the other sense of touch, the sense that where we come to be touched. And it turns out we have this huge network of nerves in our skin, which are really strongly responsive to the touch, really, of other people. And if somebody is stroked on, let's say, their back at a particular speed by another person, actually, or actually in, in the experiments, it could even be a, a, a robot operating a paintbrush. But if the hands glide over your back at, at say, 5 to 10 centimeters a second, something of that order, you get this tremendous um, response, this really intense response from the nervous system, which is fundamentally important to our sense of well-being. Um, it's these two senses of touch operate with slightly different nervous apparatus. They connect to the brain in different ways. But we can see through brain imaging of people that are undergoing this kind of caress the brain responds to it far more strongly than, than you might imagine. You know, many people might think that, that this kind of touch is sort of peripheral or unimportant, but really the, 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 the human brain is, I guess this connects to my previous book about, you know, us being social animals and just how much, you know, other primates spend, how much time other primates spend touching and caressing and grooming each other. It, it's, it all ties into the same thing, which is this, hunger that we have to be touched and the rewards that our brain provides us when it happens. So to be without it is has, has caused a real problem. Now, of course, there are all sorts of social mores and, and, and cultural differences in this respect. You know, when I was growing up in, in, in Britain, my, sadly, my, 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 my granddad, who I loved very dearly, would no more have hugged me than, I don't know, run a marathon. But it would confine himself to a to a to a handshake. It was just not part of his lexicon, his, his behavioural lexicon. It would have seemed weird to him. And and yeah. happily now, people are, are, are in some respects more relaxed about that. But if, again, there's the other aspects where you know you don't want to be seen to be creepy, or you know you don't want to invade somebody's personal space. So it's got to be very very carefully judged. But 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 touch or a caress between loved ones is, is is so incredibly important to our lives. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that our bodies are built for it. You know, we're mm -hmm. social animals and, and, and touch has always been an incredibly important part of our existence. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's the famous uh, uh, attachment studies that were done with the, with the I think there were Rheus monkeys and they had like the, the wire uh, monkey and they and then the one that had like the cloth on it whatever and in the ones that had the more uh, kind of warm and 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 were seen as more um you know appealing to go to were you know those those uh, monkeys did uh, much better and the other ones i think died or were severely ill if they didn't have some type of something that was similar to the touch they know and yeah obviously during the pandemic it was uh, really really tough for a lot of people um you know back then if you were if you had COVID and you were in hospital, uh, you could see no one, you know, yeah. and no one could come. They couldn't even see anybody. It yeah. was just, it was just in, in really, really tough. And, and that happens in other, uh, at other times in our history as well, where, you know, we've been quarantined or whatever. So, I mean, I, I would agree that we are, we are as humans. And I wonder, <clears throat> you do talk about this in your first, your other book, but, uh, the, the social aspect of us as humans, I wonder how much touch is, is is connected or integrated with the sociality of of things it's it's, it's very interesting there's there was a thing actually that 
this awful experiment that I came up, um, I came across whilst I was researching the book. It was an experiment conducted by, by the Holy Roman Emperor who was, you know, a, a ruled of this vast sort of potentate in, in, in central Europe, um, uh, a thousand years ago or so. But in his, um, scholarly pursuits, shall we say, because this, this guy had clearly a, a, a very strange moral compass. He, he was fascinated to know whether the first language spoken by people or what that first language was. And he decided it must be based on the balance of probabilities, either Hebrew or Greek. But to find out what he needed to do was to take newborn babies away from their mothers, have them raised by nursemaids. And the nursemaids were under very strict instructions. They were not allowed to speak in the presence of the babies. His idea being that once they started to speak, they would reveal what the original language of humans was. The, the, the kind of the, 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 you know, the original language, the, the starter. And so these, these nursemaids were each looked after a baby. They were under strict instructions not to, um, talk to them. And they were also, sadly, um, also under, strict instructions not to touch them too much or to handle them too much beyond basic feeding and basic cleaning. And the results of the experiment were absolutely clear, although not at all in the way that um, this slightly demonic um, Holy Roman Emperor thought. Um, Obviously, he didn't find the origins of language, but what he did find was the fact that if if babies weren't handled, if they weren't given the incredible power of touch that even though they were well fed, even though they were clean and, and in that regard, at least hygienically well looked after one by one, all of them died, no. which kind of really points to the importance, um, the, the incredible importance. We sometimes overlook of touch. So really right from an early age where, where, you know, where, where fundamentally, um, intrinsically in need of touch, um, as that awful example sort of demonstrates, another example, of course, was with the uh, the tragic case of the Romanian orphans in the uh, in the aftermath of the downfall of yeah. Nicolae Ceausescu. And, and and but there are many other examples. Um, I think we neglect touch at our peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely agree. Well, I guess the the last question I have <clears throat> is, uh, is sometimes a, a question I ask folks is, you know, someone's um, in, in, a, in a bookstore and they see this this beautifully this beautiful uh cover on this book i mean seriously i mean this is a fantastic cover it's uh for, for listeners it's it's got uh flowers on it but it's a green and a red of course those colors don't really exist and not to the smell that they emanate no 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 right no, right um <laughs> um it's a beautiful book it's a beautiful cover uh and uh it has some aesthetic uh affinity for myself at least and um they see this book and they pick it up and they they read through it what is your hope that um you know do do people walk away with and that you can say uh yeah that's what i was trying to say you know i'm glad that you got what i was trying to say what 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 is the the one or two things you hope people get from from reading uh this book Hey, well, I think my, my, my ethos in, in all of these things is that what I'm dealing with here is something so incredibly fascinating that I think everybody should hear about it. Everybody should know more about it. And it will, in, I, I hope, enrich their lives. But 
the most important thing, and I, and I think about this when I'm lecturing students, not not just when I'm writing. You can't inform somebody or you know contribute in an educational sense to somebody unless you're entertaining them. And, and so really that's that's my ethos when I'm writing. I'm trying to be uh, entertaining um, because we you know we, we're naturally we're storytelling animals. We're we're animals who enjoy a sort of a narrative, and 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 you know we respond well to. To, to the unfolding of a story. What ultimately I hope people take away from it at the end of it is, I guess, a, a deeper wonder, not only of how we interpret the world in which we live, but how the brain does an incredible job of convincing us that this, and to return to where we started, that this amazing mess, this soup of, of physical properties out there is something intuitive and understandable. And, you know, if we can understand how sensation in turn becomes perception, if we can start to get a grip on perception, which, you know, is one of the massive questions in science. If we can understand perception, we're, we're then at the threshold of understanding consciousness, which in turn is probably the biggest question, I, I would argue, in the whole of science. So, what I yeah, so what I'd really like the readers to get is how it is that we experience the world, how we you know, I mean that's kind of suggested by the title, but what our senses mean to our everyday lives, how we can better understand other people. So for instance, in there I talk about pain. And all too often it, with with pain, as with our other senses, pain is separate to touch. But with, as with all our other senses, we can, we can be sadly rather quick to judge when somebody says something hurts. They go, oh, you know, that's nothing. Don't be a baby or what have you. Um, but our sense of, our sense of pain, the pain that we experience is very uh, completely unique to us. And it really would behoove us to, to be a little bit more appreciative of the fact that we vary enormously in terms of all of our senses, pain included and to, mm be a little kinder to one another in this respect to, to appreciate that just because I feel something in a certain way, that doesn't mean that another person feels something in a, in a certain way. And that, that our senses are highly variable and that our perception of the world differs. And through this somehow to reach this, um, re- reach an idea of that, that lets us put our own self importance to one side and, and tries to, you know, experience the world insofar as it's ever possible through um, the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and skin of another person. I'd say that's that's probably where I'm heading with that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's um, very much uh, a needed message that I think uh, many folks need to uh, need to hear. Um, the book is called <clears throat> "Where We Meet the World: The Story of the Senses." Uh, it's through basic books. I'm sure you can find it everywhere. Uh, where can uh, people find yourself? Where are the best places to to get at you? Either you know, email or social media or, or yeah. Email? So I'm on I'm on Twitter, um, Ashley J W Ward. Um, I'm on. I've got a website, AshleyWard.net. Um, and I'm, you know, one of the lovely things about being an author actually has been people reaching out and sending me emails. Complete strangers from all around the world sending me an email to to ask a question or to say that they enjoyed the book or, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whatever it is. I I mean, maybe, maybe the day will come when, when I find this to be intrusive, but as yet, I just, 
it's still kind of, I and mean, this is, this is, makes me sound like a fool, I suppose, but I'm, <laughs> that's never stopped me before. I just find it incredible that, you know, I could, I could have been typing out this book and, and somehow it's reached into somebody else's life somewhere else that I've never met. Uh, and that's, that's, that's some impact on them, them. And I love to hear about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's all, that's all wonderful. And I think that it's, it's nice that you're so receptive to that. And, and, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure that people will enjoy the book. Um, Ashley, this was so much fun. I, we, we had so much fun the first time we did it. Absolutely. I, I, I was so honest when I said, I hope you come back again. And, and, uh, I'm glad you did. We, we had a really nice, wonderful, uh, another two hours, you know, talking about this book and all the wonderful themes in it. And, uh, you're always welcome to come on and talk uh, at any point. And, uh, I, I certainly hope we, we do so again. I've enjoyed it so much. And thanks, thanks for your time, Xavier. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. 